chapter 5. And I'd like to play, this is unusual, but I'd like to play a little, little game with you. This is not my normal way of doing things, but we'll see how this goes. Let's play a little game of who said that. Who said that? We'll start out with some easy ones. There's no place like home. Elementary, my dear Watson. Get a little harder. My precious. Hey, wow. Okay. Here's a couple for the kids. Just keep swimming. See, I hear some adult voices in that. How about to infinity and beyond? Yeah, it's good. Here's a couple for those who grew up in the 80s. I'll be back. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terminator, both are acceptable. Wax on, wax off. (laughs) Everybody who grew up in the 80s loves Mr. Miyagi. Okay, for anybody who was born and lived in the last 60 years, how about this one? Martini, shaken, not stirred. James Bond. There's basically two ways that you can motivate somebody. You can motivate people to action by stirring them to action through encouraging or inspiring words, right? Winston Churchill is probably the perfect example of this as he led England through World War II. He was just inspiring his people to go on and on. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets and in the foothills. And we shall never, never, never surrender. Stirred his people to action. But you can also shake people to action. Scripture, from time to time, does this to jolt us out of our spiritual slumbers, to shake us, to shake the apathy out of us. And Paul does this towards the end of his his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this, Corinthians, examine yourselves whether to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He's shaking the Corinthian church. John does this when he writes to the church at Laodicea. And you know, you know what it's like. He says, listen, I wish you were hot or cold. You're lukewarm. Thus, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's terrifying. Imagine a church hearing that. Jesus, in his ministry, did this continually. Constantly. You can't read the Gospels without, from time to time, just being shaken. Deeply shaken. I, I imagine the people hearing what he said in Matthew 7. Hearing, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my God in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And drive out demons in your name and perform miracles. 
then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. If that doesn't put a lump in your throat, I don't know what will. Being shaken from time to time in Scripture is a good thing. That's what we've been experiencing from the very beginning in Hebrews, hasn't it been, brothers and sisters? We've just been shaken continually. And if you want to flip back to chapter 2, verse 1, we read there, he shakes them up after, after his great introduction. He says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. And then he goes on to say, For if the messenger, message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Or again in chapter 3, verse 12, after telling them of the hard-heartedness of his ancestors, their ancestors in the wilderness, he says these words, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And then again in chapter 4, verse 1, after he describes the failure of the wilderness generation to enter the promised land, he shakes them up by saying, Therefore, while the promise of entering... His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to have reached it. The letter to the Hebrews is not meant to stir to action, but to shake people to action. We come today to one of the sections of Scripture that has shaken believers for two thousand years. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 through Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12. I'm going to be dealing with this passage in in three separate sermons. Today we're going to look at chapter 5 verses 11 to 14. Next week we're going to look at the chilling passage in chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 and then we're going to look at the encouraging passage in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. So today, though, I want to read the whole section so we have the context. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 11, where God's word says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not food. For everyone who lives on milk is, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him in contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to know the same earnestness, to have the fullness of assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. Holy Spirit, we implore you to help us in your word that you inspired, that you have preserved for us to hear this day intentionally. All glory to you. Amen. To understand this correctly, context is really, really critical. As we've been saying in the book of Hebrews, it's very hard to just parachute in because it's a long, sustained argument. The author plans on spending the next four chapters unpacking this this Jesus and his high priesthood. Remember what the author has just said in chapter 5, the the sermon from two weeks ago. (coughs) Excuse me. How Jesus is the reality of this high priestly office. That Jesus fulfills the qualifications. He starts there. The high priest had qualifications. And he shows how Jesus fulfilled those qualifications. He must be a man that is appointed by God in the lineage of Aaron, the high priest, right? But then he drops verse 10 on them. And he says, being designated by God, Jesus, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Excuse me. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after he says that, the author pauses. He, He writes that, and then he stops. And he writes verse 11. About this we have much to say. About Melchizedek and the high priesthood, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain to you because you have become dull of hearing. He stops suddenly because he realizes the audience to which he is writing is lost. He says, I'm going to unpack this awesome truth. And he pauses, he goes, I I think that they, they just turned off. They have no idea. And so he's going to take this, this section of scripture from 5.11 to 6.12, and it's kind of a parenthesis in his argument, and he's going to shake 
these believers up. We know that this is, this is the thought unit because starting in chapter 5 verse 11, we have this word dull of hearing in chapter 6 verse 12. If you look there, he says they are sluggish. This is the Greek word nothros. It's used, same Greek word, just translated differently. And it means lazy, disinterested, bored. He is saying basically that they are apathetic to the word of God. They are apathetic to the things in God's word. So he shakes them up and he warns them against this spiritual apathy. That's what verses 11 through 14 are doing. He's, he's cautioning them, he's warning them about this spiritual apathy that is so deadly. That's what those verses are all about. Apathy is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern for something of importance. And that's what he feels the audience has just lapsed into, or has become an apathetic people towards the word of God. He's about to spend the next three chapters unpacking this doctrine, this Melchizedekian priesthood. And he looks out on the congregation, and if, if, it, if I can paint a picture here, he, fee, he sees a few people looking out the window. There's a handful that he's glancing around, and he sees them looking at their watches. He sees some who have opened their bulletin and are kind of perusing through and seeing what's going on. Still, others, he looks out, and they're, they're, the lids of their eyes have gotten kind of heavy. There's a few that have taken to writing their to-do list for the week. Oh, okay. Qualifications for high priest. Well, let's see. I've got to go get new tires for my car. And there's even a small number that he looks out and he sees kind of an annoyed look on their face. Why are we spending time in this? Melchizedek, really? And he says in verse 11, I can't explain this to you because you've been so consistently apathetic towards the word of God that you have no framework to understand this. You're still spiritual babies. That's one of the metaphors he uses, right? You're still, you still need milk. You're still drinking milk. You can't even eat this solid Melchizedekian food that I'm just about to serve up to you. Stuart Oliot translates that verse there. You cannot yet take solid food. You cannot get your teeth into anything of substance. It's kind of the, the image of, of, a, of a baby that the teeth haven't broken through yet, so they can't actually get into anything solid. They've not grown the spiritual teeth they need to consume the harder things of the Word of God. Alistair Begg, who I, I'm using in preparation for this sermon series, he painted the picture of looking out and the men and women are there sucking on bottles. Then he uses the metaphor of the young student. They ought to be teachers, but they're still students. 
See, as a believer, as a true believer, there should be steady growth in your life. There should be progress in your understanding. Just like a student goes from addition and then you teach them multiplication and then you go on to geometry and then algebra and then trigonometry and then statistics and however long you can go, there should be progress. There's something wrong if a 32-year-old still cannot do multiplication. There's something wrong. You know that. And there's something wrong with a believer that can't consume the deeper things of Scripture. Now, not everybody advances to trigonometry and statistics. It's just a fact. I will never, ever understand trigonometry. I will not go there. I just get lost. Just like some of us will never get some things. But, you know, as an aside, if you're a new Christian here, if you're a new Christian, you shouldn't hear this as condemnation. You're, you, you still have gums, the, the, the teeth are still starting to poke through there. That's okay to be there. It's okay to start learning addition. But brothers and sisters, if you've been sitting in church for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years and you still have little nubbles of teeth that can barely poke through the gums, there's something wrong. And that's what he's saying here. Something wrong. South African pastor Andrew Murray, who, who lived in the late 19th century, early 20th century, wrote about the Christian life, and he says this, there's no safety but in advance in the Christian life. To stand still is to go back. To cease effort is to lose ground. To slacken the pace before the goal is reached is to lose the race. Let me read that one again because I think this is what the writer of the Hebrews is getting at. To slacken the pace before the goal is reached is to lose the race. Isn't that just what he was talking about with the ancestors in the wilderness? They weren't willing to go forward and they lost the race. They died in the desert. So he shakes them up by saying, I see no progress in your lives. Look at verse 13. It says there, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. In other words, these people can't even get around in the word of God. They don't know how to use it. They're like many Christians today who think theology is a waste of time. That the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, the soteriology, pneumatology, that's boring. That the exploration of justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification, that wonderful progress we should see in the Christian life, don't talk to me about that. That the doctrine of ecclesiology, the study of, of how God has designed the church to work, is just silly rules. 
when I hope that our body is realizing more and more how critical membership is to your growth. That having biblical, tested, loving shepherds is critical. And that living under authority is life-giving. Do you know what the last words of David were? Read them in 2 Samuel 23 today when you go home. First several verses. He says that living under authority, living under authority is like a cloudless morning, he describes it as. Or, or the earth just after the rain that gives nourishment so that things begin to grow. And the author looks at his readers and sees that they think reading the Old Testament is a waste of time. That's, all, that's the scripture they had, right? In the first century. It's what he meant. They don't care. They're apathetic concerning what he is about to say. And apathy, brothers and sisters, towards the word of God is so dangerous. He gives one example of the danger here in verse 14. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What he's saying is, if if you've been apathetic towards the word of God, you'll be easily led astray. You'll be easily led astray. You'll have no discernment. They're not going to be able to distinguish good from evil. That was the point, one of the points of our memory verse last year, wasn't it? In Ephesians 4. To grow in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that you will not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, of deceitful schemes, craftiness, This is a warning for you and me. As a believer, every Christian, every Christian should be able to listen to the radio and distinguish between a preacher that is preaching heresy and one that is preaching good, solid doctrine. You should be able to distinguish that. 88.5 does not have 100% good preaching on there, brothers and sisters. They're just filling their time. And if this one's cheaper, they'll put him on. You have to be able to distinguish that. Otherwise, you'll be t- tossed to and fro. You'll be carried along by this preacher that says this or that. If you cannot push aside their amazing style and eloquence and see the rot, that's really dangerous. Secondly, spiritual apathy towards the word of God is dangerous because it inhibits you from understanding the deeper truths of Scripture, and this gets right at what the author is saying out of the gates. 
These people cannot begin to understand Jesus, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, because they have not chewed on the doctrines of the priesthood in the Old Testament. They have not read Genesis 14, where Melchizedek shows up and thrown themselves against that rock. They haven't opened up Exodus uh, 28 and 29 or, or Leviticus 9 and 10 that, that talks about the priesthood that I put in your discovery notes several weeks ago. And I wonder how many people read those. In preparation for this message. And chewed on that and gone, what is God doing here? You'll not have the teeth to understand the next three chapters unless you have thrown yourself against those rocks. You won't have the bandwidth for it. And as I go on preaching and as this, this text is read, it will be incredibly boring to you. I will guarantee that. I remember a woman early on in my pastorate here, very early on, who... I can't remember the context, but she came up to me and she, she didn't pat me on the head, but that's kind of how I felt, you know. And she said, oh, Blake, we don't want to be too doctrinaire here. She didn't do that, but I definitely felt that. And I, I, I understand what she meant in part. We just don't want to be about doctrine. But like an infant, in order for the teeth to poke through the gums, if you've had children, they have to teeth. There has to be something hard. That is what we need to grow. To spend time chewing on, are you a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist? What do you think about justification by faith alone and what that means about what you contribute to your salvation? Or how about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? It takes up a gargantuan amount of the Old Testament. And here, Melchizedek. Each of us has hard questions to ask ourselves. Is doctrine really a bad word? Do I get bored by it? Are there truths in Scripture that seem absolutely impossible for you? And if so, have you thrown yourself against those to try and understand them? Is it difficult for you to distinguish what is right and wrong when you hear it on the radio? Are there vast parts of Scripture? Are there vast parts of Scripture that you know absolutely nothing about. Are you apathetic towards God's word? Are you still satisfied with the basics? The elementary things? That's, by the way, what Our author points to next in the first three verses of chapter 6. 
It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works or the faith of, towards God, instruction for washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, there's no unanimity on what these mean. They can mean a wide variety of things. They can perhaps mean the basic things of becoming a Christian. Okay? So you look at repent. They're traditionally seen in, in three pairs here. Repentance from the dead works and faith in God. That would be salvation, coming to salvation. Instructions of washings and laying on of hands. This would be Christian living. Baptism and the ordination of, of officers in the church, perhaps. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, the destination that we're all plotting towards. It can mean those things. I, I, I tend to lean backwards here, though, for myself. The author is addressing these converted Jews who are tempted to go back to the old ways. And so he, he describes these old ways as the elementary things. These six doctrines listed here are all doctrines that an Orthodox Jew would subscribe to. Repentance from dead works, sure. Repenting from self-salvation. People got saved in the Old Testament the same way they got saved in the New Testament. Faith towards God, just as Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Instructions about washings, perhaps ceremonial washings that they had to do. Laying on of hands, this perhaps a reference to the sacrificial system where they placed their hands on the animals and, and transferred their guilt to the animal and the animal was killed. Resurrection of the dead and eternal punishment. Orthodox Jew would, would be on, on board for that. F.F. F. Bruce commentating on these says, these were the foundation already laid in the Old Testament. All these were given a fresher and fuller significance because of the coming of Christ. In other words, all these things were to point us towards the Messiah. Jesus is the high priest. But F.F. F. Bruce goes on and says this. These converts were exposed to a subtler danger which converts from paganism could not experience. Under pressure, they could yield gradually, giving up more and more of their Christian distinctives, yet feel as though they had not abandoned the faith. Isn't that interesting? You know, when you're converted from paganism, you realize what you've been converted from. When you grow up in the church sometimes, and you, you're, you're surrounded with these things, sometimes you can, you can think you've got it, and maybe you don't. There's a saying, there's enough knowledge to be dangerous. That's what these Jewish converts had. These, these Jewish converts could very easily slip back into doing some, a lot of the things that, that were required of the Mosaic Law and still feel as though they're in. And that can happen to us as well. 
If you grew up in Christian legalism, you, you, you know this. In a church or family that taught that strict obedience was the gospel, or that length of hair or length of skirt is a test of your orthodoxy, or that going out to lunch after church was not observing the Sabbath, that the external mattered more than the internal, that how you act is more important than who you are. That's legalism. If you grew up in that kind of environment, there is a danger that to slip back into that and think, I'm okay. And as he says here in the coming verses, that's really dangerous. Those are chilling verses, six through eight. See, they had enough knowledge to come out of Judaism, but also to slip back into it and to go on thinking that they were saved. And the author is warning them, don't go back to these shadows, these forms, these elementary things. Go forward into Christ. Because if you go back, there's a chilling warning. And there's always a chilling warning that goes with the gospel, isn't there? Always. You know, when you, when you share the gospel with somebody, you're sharing the hope that is in Christ. But I truly hope that you are also sharing what is life without Christ like. I know where the destination of this one is. Let me describe it to you. And by the way, Rejecting that means this destination. There's always a warning that comes with it. Because the gospel is such a serious thing. It's the most serious thing in your life. I can say that with 100% assurity. Because nothing else in your life determines where you're going to be for eternity. Nothing. Eternity hangs in the balance. So to approach it apathetically, to treat the gospel lightly, always comes with a warning. Always comes with a warning. And we'll look at that chilling warning next week. But even as we approach the Lord's Supper together today, isn't there a chilling warning that goes along with the Lord's Supper? The visible means of the gospel. Right? 1 Corinthians 11, Paul heard that the Corinthian church was approaching the Lord's table apathetically, lightly. And so he writes a chilling warning. He says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of blood of Christ. Therefore, let a person examine himself And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says this. That's why many of you are weak and sick and dying. 
Whatever unworthy means, at the very least it means not discerning the body of Jesus Christ. Not understanding what these elements represent. Not understanding the gospel. Taking the gospel lightly. That you are a sinner in dire need of salvation. The the wages of sin actually is death. And not just physical death, spiritual death. That unless something is done, we're all in trouble. Deep trouble. But God did do something. That's what this table represents. God himself came and lived the perfect life that you could never live. Sinless in word, thought, and deed. Never succumbed to temptation, although he was, he was tempted to the very extent of it that we studied in chapter 3. And that he earned heaven. He's the only person ever to be born that earned heaven. That God could say, yep, you did it all. And instead of taking that ticket and leaving, he said, you know what? I'm going to offer it to anyone who would believe in me. And that's what the cross is. He went to the cross and he paid your debt, your sin debt. He took on himself, he absorbed your sin and paid the penalty for it by dying on a cross and being buried. But he rose again on the third day. He rose from life, proving that all he said and did was true. And like a bookmark in a book, when he rose, if you believe in him, the promise is you will rise as well. Honestly, physically, at the end of the days, you'll rise from the dead and you'll be with him forever. That's the gospel that this represents. So if you're a Christian, if you believe that gospel, this table should mean a ton to you. It should mean everything to you. As it did to the reformers that died so that we could have this. So let's take a few moments and just praise God for what he has done through Jesus Christ. And now let's come together and celebrate.